Hello and welcome to Matthew Felix on Air. People who create, people who make a difference. Coming to you from Wordspace Studios in San Francisco, California. The show is on hiatus for the summer, so I'm digging into the archives for some great episodes from the recent past that I hope are just as relevant and thought-provoking and entertaining now as they were when they were originally broadcast. On today's show, which aired in June of last year, I talk with Jameson Watts of the Marin Agricultural Land Trust about Malt's history and mission, their recent successes and current goals, and how agricultural land is preserved and why it matters. Malt has worked with 85 farming families to preserve over 52,000 acres. Thanks for listening. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels. Humor, horror, and revelation in, on, and around toilets, tubs, and showers. A number one bestseller in Amazon's travel humor and literary travel categories, and winner of four Solas Awards, including gold for humor. Publishers Weekly called Porcelain Travels offbeat and funny, and CBS travel editor Peter Greenberg called it a very funny book. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which features recorded and live readings of excerpts from the book. Porcelain Travels is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon.com and other online retailers. Given his background, perhaps it's no surprise that Jameson Watts ended up director, executive director of the Marin Agricultural Land Trust, or MALT. Jameson is a great-great-grandson of John Muir's sister, Margaret Muir Reed, so clearly conservation runs in Jameson's blood. His interest in conservation led him to earn a degree from UC Davis in environmental biology with an emphasis in conservation biology. After earning his degree, he spent 12 years as a wildlife biologist and environmental consultant while earning a master's in biological sciences from California State University, Chico. From 2006 to 2012, Jameson worked as the executive director of the Northern California Regional Land Trust, where he increased their budget by nearly 600%. I may need to ask Jameson to help some fundraising, uh, do some fundraising for me. Uh, he also tripled the number of acres conserved and co-founded by Fresh by Local North Valley, a local food branding program for Butte, Glen, and Tahama counties. Jameson joined Malt as executive director in 2013, and in June of 2018, he joins me on my show. Welcome, Jameson. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So before we jump into Malt and your mission and how you got started and your work, um, I wanted to give people who might not already know some background about agricultural land loss. Uh, an article last month in the San Francisco Chronicle explained that, quote, the United States is losing its best farmland to development. Even as the country's population booms, according to a new report from the nonprofit conservation organization, American Farmland Trust. According to the American Farmland Trust, the United States lost almost 31 million acres, or 3.2% of its total farmland from 1992 to 2012. California, which is responsible for one-eighth of the country's farm production, lost an estimated 1.3 million acres of agricultural land to development during the same time period as both the state and the U.S. population increased by 22%. So we've got less land, more people to feed. In the report, agricultural land is defined as non-federal cropland, pastureland, rangeland, and woodland used to support agriculture. The report also found that 11 million of the acres lost to development were considered prime farmland, or land with the best soil, water access, and microclimates for intensive crop production. 
In California, the researchers said, almost all of the 1.3 million acres of farmland that were developed went to either urbanization or commercial, industrial, and high-density residential areas. So that article gives us a quick sense of what the situation is like now with regards to threats to agricultural land. But the problem is not new, and the problem is not a far-off one. In the uh, early 60s, beautiful, bucolic West Marin County, just north of San Francisco, for listeners who aren't local, uh, West Marin County faced some serious threats of its own. And so, Jameson, can you tell us about those threats and how they led to malt getting its start? Sure. So, uh, and thank you for that background, Matthew, on, on farmland loss nationally and in, in California. It's an it's a, it's a eye-opening uh, report yep. that AFP put out there. Yep. Um, which I'd like to come back to, but sure. the story about Marin really was in the 60s and 70s, there were plans to to develop the entire county, including West Marin. And so that included three freeways oh, wow. coming through West Marin and a, a city the size of San Rafael where Point Reyes Station now stands. So it would have been much, a much different place. Um, so there are two remarkable women who really... Uh, one was a, a rancher, a dairy woman by the name of Ellen Strauss. If Strauss sounds familiar, that's because she was the matriarch of what is now the Strauss family creamery. Yep. Um, and uh, our other co-founder, Phyllis Faber, who's still to this day a fiery um, wetlands biologist and environmentalist. Uh-huh. And they started seeing a lot of for sale signs going up in West Marin. And around the same time, the uh, Point Reyes National Seashore had been created. Uh, it was in 1962. And so that scenario was basically ranchers sold their land to the federal government and then received long-term leases back. Yep. And so where they could continue farming and ranching, that was how the park was originally uh, legislated and founded. Yep. And so Ellen and Phyllis saw this, this incredible model um, across Tamales Bay in, on the peninsula out there where these ranchers had long-term land security. And they said, well, how can we do that here on the private side? Mm-hmm. Um, because at, at that time in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a lot of speculation about what was going to happen. And a lot of ranchers just kind of felt and farmers thought their time was had come. It's time to sell the highest bidder, get out, go somewhere else or just cash out. Yep. And um, that was kind of shook the foundation of that community to its core. So with a lot of help, these two women basically created a coalition of ranchers and environmentalists who created the first um, agricultural land trust in the country, MALT, or the Marin Agricultural Land Trust. Yep. And um, since that time in 1980, we've protected now over 50,000 acres of, of farmland from subdivision and development. Which is just incredible. And congratulations, because you just reached that fairly recently, and we're going to talk about that yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, one thing that comes up and that you even refer to on the, on your site when I was uh, preparing for today is this, you have ranchers on the one side, and I say bef- one side before the collaboration, so pr- you know, possibly on one side, and then you've got environmentalists on another. And when I say sides, because often they are at odds, right? Often sure. they do have different agendas. Yeah. And ranchers, for environmentalists want the lands wild, ranchers want to use it for pasture, uh, ranchers in certain areas might be affected by by predators, you know, attacking their livestock. Tule elk might cause them a problem around here on mm-hmm. Point Reyes in the peninsula, whereas environmentalists might be working to increase their numbers. So, and that's just a couple examples off the top of my head. 
So there are so many ways in which they can be at odds. So what was it that Ellen and Phyllis, rancher and environmentalist, and of course other farmers as well, I'm sure, and adjacent to ranchers were probably undoubtedly involved. But what was the common interest that brought them together that, that enabled them to see, wait, we're not actually on different sides. We're actually on the same side and we have similar goals and we, sh- we should collaborate here. Right. Well, that that's really what it is. I mean, that's what it was back then and what it is today is a lot of folks want people to believe that you have to choose between, you know, profitable commercial agriculture and a healthy and diverse natural environment. Yep. And that's just a false choice. That's just, that's the false choice. And uh, a lot of, a lot of folks believe that to be the truth, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. You can have both. Mm -hmm. And um, especially in, in an area like uh, Marin where, you know, grass and grazing is basically a part of the culture there and has been for over a hundred years, yep. but where you can actually gain environmental benefits from grazing mm-hmm. if it's done, if it's done well, responsibly it's done right. And, right. and so that's really what we take a lot of pride in. And that, you know, there are, like you mentioned, a lot of areas across the country where, um, agriculture and environment are kind of at odds with one another, but, you know, kind of back to your opening, you know, um, the world's population is supposed to reach 9 billion by That's 2050. Insane. And so how are we going to feed ourselves, you know, as, as a global community, how are we going to feed ourselves in a way that doesn't destroy or degrade the natural environment? Um, and so, you know, we have to figure that one out. Yep. And so wherever we can find examples of sustainable agriculture, and when I say sustainable, I don't, I'm not talking about certified organic or pasture raised. I'm talking about, agriculture that is community-based, that's profitable over the long term, and that's environmentally sustainable over the mm-hmm. long term. So if you have mm-hmm. those three things, the community is benefiting, there's, there's profitability, and the environment is being sustained and supported, um, that's the model we need to be, be looking for and, and searching out. Yep. And that's really, you know, I think one of the things that Malt has been doing over the last almost 40 years is catalyzing a sustainable agricultural community. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about how we've done that, but um, wherever we can find those examples, we need to zero in and really see what those folks and what those communities are doing. Learn from them and spread uh, and, it, and spread it, right? You know, and so that's really—I don't know—that Phyllis and Ellen, you know, got together to to do that. I think in the very beginning, they just wanted to—they wanted to see those for sale signs go down. Yeah, they wanted to see these these multi generational farming families stay on the land yeah. and not bail out. Right. And so they, and so, and that, I think having those two women, one an environmentalist, one a dairy woman who were fast friends and said, Hey, look, you know, we're, we're really a lot closer together than we are apart. And we love Marin. We love Marin. That's probably, I mean, that's what's bringing them together. Yeah. We love Marin. We love this community here. And, and I mean, I think the community embraced that concept. And if you ask a rancher or a farmer whether or not they're environmentalists or whether or not they care about the land that they're farming or ranching, they will say absolutely. Right. They, they actually consider themselves the first environmentalists. Well, there you go. Because their livelihoods depend on them taking care of the land. So if right. they do a bad job, they're going to hurt themselves you know, financially long-term. Right. So it just makes perfect sense that, that this model would, would get some traction. Right. So. Okay. So let's talk about the model. Let's talk about how malt works. Cause this is really interesting to me and it's, it underpins everything you do. And it's this land odors, you compensate land, land owners through easements. Mm-hmm. So most people probably don't know what an easement is. So what are easements and how do they work? Yeah. So when you say easement to somebody, you usually think of like a PG&E easement. Yeah. 
um, something like that, which which is is similar. But a conservation easement is a, an agreement between a land trust like Malt and a landowner that uh, permanently restricts the use of the property to just agriculture. So they can never subdivide or develop that property ever again. And we pay them for that. So when you look at when you own land, some people call it a, a bundle of sticks. So okay. you you own the airspace above that land. You own the, the minerals on that land. You own the right to develop that land. So there's all these rights that you own. And basically, we're just buying one of those rights from the landowner, the right to subdivide and develop it. And then in return, we compensate them. So... And on one hand, it's a it's a um, it's a it's a contractual agreement. On the other hand, it's worth something that we pay these landowners for, and in return, they continue to own it. We don't own the land, right? They continue to own it. They continue to manage it, and we basically purchase their development rights from them, which we then extinguish. Right, and you're purchasing them because if they were just to say, "Yeah, we we're we're going to turn this over to to farming forever," without then then that lowers the value of the land. So right. they need something that's that's compensating them for agreeing to do this, just from a, an economics. Exactly. Right? I mean, they are they are, in essence, voluntarily devaluing their land by by giving up their right to subdivide and develop it. Yep. So that's worth real money. Right. And we have we don't determine that value. We have a third party appraiser that defines that value, and it's basically they look at the the value of the property with all of its rights intact, with its development rights intact, and then the value of the property without its development rights. And then the difference is what we pay is them. Is what you pay them, right. Yeah. Something that was interesting to me that I hadn't realized uh, until actually this morning when I was going over some stuff again, I had missed this. So in a press release about the Hetfield family who owns Louise Ranch, or however you say that, it said, quote, any future owners of the property will also be required to continue farming the land and meet the conservation requirements. So it's not just... I'm just curious if I understood this correctly. So it's not just saying you can't develop it, which is what I was kind of assuming. You're actually saying, in addition to not subdividing, not not developing it, you have to keep farming. Yeah. So that's the other part of this. It's it's saying this is always going to be an active farm. That's right. So it's two. It's really two very significant parts there. Yes. No. You've done your homework, man. Okay. Yes. Good. This yes. is uh, I got an A. I got an A. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is a big deal. Yeah. And, this is something that actually um, Malt, the Marin Agricultural Land Trust, is, is one of the first agricultural land trusts in the country to actually tackle this 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 challenge yep. that, that you've identified, which is you can take the development rights off a piece of farmland or ranch land, and it can still fall out of agricultural use. Sure. Right? Yep. There's, a, there's enough affluence in the Bay Area, especially in Marin, where folks can buy these 500-plus acre ranches, take the agriculture off, Build their their giant home and and take it out of the out of that that community of working farms and ranches, yep. which hurts everyone else, yep. right? Yep. And so we saw this as a big um, a threat to our mission, which is protecting marine farmland for agricultural use. So that second part of our mission is the kicker, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we can we can protect farmland with easements, but how do we keep it going agriculturally forever, right? And so we, um, in 2011, became one of the first land trusts in the country to require agricultural use, ongoing agricultural use on our easement properties. So that's fairly recent development then. Yeah, 2011. Mm -hmm. And so others have looked at the model. There are a few land trusts in the eastern U.S. that have, um, you know, are doing the same thing. But we, you know, what's great about 
Marin and Marin's agricultural community is that that hasn't slowed anyone down from working with us. Mm-hmm. Some folks think it's a little much, um, but the goal here is to keep working land working for future generations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's absolutely no way you can um, do that if you don't require ongoing agricultural use, we mm-hmm. believe. Yep. And so you're right. So not only can you not ever subdivide it and, and develop it, but you have to keep it in active agricultural use. Yeah. So if I find it, if I'm going to sell my land, I got to find another farmer. That's right. Or another rancher or another, whatever yeah. the, the agricultural can, activity might be. Yeah. Or you can lease it. So as a lot of these, you know, that AFT article you mentioned in your opening in there, it, it talks about one of the growing threats to, to farmland across America, which is, you know, the average age of agricultural landowners nationwide and Marin now is over 60. Mm. So in the next 20 years, we're going to see more and more generational transfer of land ownership and business ownership. Yep. And so if there aren't family members lined up ready to do that, then we got a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because this, this, this generational transfer event causes more ranches to, to convert to non-agricultural use than almost anything else. And so that's the thing is that if you have a, a malt easement that requires ongoing agricultural use and you don't have someone else in line, what are you going to do? So, cause this was a question I had for later on, which was because in, in an article that talks about your, you're just reaching this goal of 50,000 acres, you said, yeah, but we got to keep going because if we don't save more land, then this 50,000 acres is going to be put at risk. And I right. thought, well, why is the land going to be at risk if we've already determined that it has to be in agricultural use in perpetuity? But you're saying, because there's nobody to farm, potentially. That's right. And so so how, how do you address that issue? Well, there's a couple things. So um, because we started our mandatory agricultural use provision in 2011, all the easements prior to 2011 um, don't require ongoing agricultural use. Yep. Right? So they could potentially convert out of agriculture. Yep. Right. So that's one threat to the, to the existing 50,000 acres. That's why we have to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is, is that there is a critical mass of working farms and ranches required to support all the suppliers and processors and folks that service the ag community that make their living from the farmers and ranchers out there doing yep. their work. The veterinarians, the graphic designers, all those folks, the feed truck drivers, all those folks who, who rely upon these working farms and ranches need a critical mass of farms and ranches. Yep. And so 50,000 acres is not it. The critical mass required to support that industry is more like 100,000 acres or more. Okay. So if we were to stop today and let those remaining 50,000 acres eventually convert out of agricultural use, the supporting services would dry up. Mm-hmm. And then we also have this other challenge of updating the older multi-easements. Well, that was my question is if you kind of try to go back and you're talking about the ones that don't have this clause, Correct. you do go back and try to get the clause implemented. Correct. Okay. And how do you so do that? That's another part of it. So we yeah. are, as of a couple of years ago, we are the only land trust in the United States that has a comprehensive mandatory agricultural use program. So not only are we requiring mandatory agricultural use in all of our new easements, but we're going back and on a voluntary basis, we can't make these landowners do anything, but we can offer them um, compensation for updating their easements to include that mandatory agricultural use provision. Okay, so it's the same model. We just say we're recognizing here that there's there would be an uh, there there would be value to you 
in uh, in in making this agreement, just like the previous agreement. Yep. So we're going to compensate you for this as well. That's right. And you are going back though and trying yeah, to. Yeah, and we've done to date. We've done uh, three amendments, and uh, we're going to be continuing to prioritize that going forward because I see it as a as a big deal. Yep. You know, we have about twenty percent of all of our easements we have this mandatory agricultural use provision in them. Okay. And so, you know, what about the other eighty percent? Well, a question I have is because you know, pretty much thus far in our conversation, we've mostly talked economics. And but what about if I've had a farm in my family for three generations or however many generations? How far back do we go here? Three generations? Do uh, we go six. Six generations. One hundred fifty years. All right. I some, some of them, not, yeah. not all. No, of them, but, but that's what I was curious. Like, how far back would the so six generations? Yeah. I'm probably going to have an emotional attachment in addition to the economics. So, how often do you see? Or maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe I love the farm, but the reality is, I don't want to be a farmer. So, I am. I'm just curious. How much does the emotional sort of come into play when you're negotiating with these people? Like, how many of the people say, "Oh, you're right. We should have had that clause in there initially." So, yeah, let's do that. Right. Versus, well, it's going to cost you. You know, and of course, usually I'm guessing maybe it's somewhere in between. I'm just curious, though, is there that emotional element that comes into these negotiations or is it just it just varies, you know, a lot from farm to farm or ranch yeah, to ranch? It's or? Uh, well, it, it's a big decision. I mean, I, everyone in, in Moran and West Moran knows about malt. You know, West Moran's a fairly small geographic area. Right. Yep. We, we've been working in, the, in this region for 38 years. Um, I I. I'm proud to to say that I think we're a trusted you know organization in Marin, and so they know what we what we're all about. But typically, um, it takes a generational event for them to come to us. Okay, um, and they often come to you. Yeah, they yeah. do, and that that's kind of the model here. It's not the same, you know, nationwide. Most a lot of land trusts will go out and proactively, you know, market and solicit landowners. Right, Malt really has never done that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean. The in the very beginning, when Phyllis and Ellen got started, they went to a couple of influential board, uh, influential landowners, and who signed up and said, "Yeah, this makes sense," and they were able to use that easement payment to capitalize their business and grow their business. Mm-hmm. And other people, you know, that's just the way it works in these agricultural communities. Is right. you, you you work with a couple of influential landowners who have a good report. And they say, yeah, it's, hey, it's worked for me. I, I've got no complaints. You know, other people start coming in because they said, yeah. hey, you know, Willie LaFranchi did it. It can't be that bad. You yeah, know, let, it let's could go, even be good. Let's go talk to him. It could be really good for us. Yeah. You know? And so that's kind of, you know, if you look at um, Marin County's um, agricultural revenues, gross agricultural revenues, they, they doubled between 2005 and 2015. Interesting. So, how does that compare with the rest of the country? Do you know? Is that typical that revenues are going up, or? Well, for us, I mean, it, it really was the organic milk. That's what it was about. You okay. know, production that really started taking off. Um, but you look at the, I, you know, I, we can't take credit for all that because it's a lot of other people besides just malt and our malt community. But if you look at the um, the combination of things that we've contributed to the community, right? So, mm-hmm. land security, you know, agricultural permanence environment, you know, partnering in environmental stewardship, you know, these easement payments that these farmers use to consolidate ownership, to capitalize business, um, all together, that's had, a, I think, a profound effect in really stabilizing Moran's agricultural community. Yep. 
Yeah. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about one case study that really uh, it's recent. And when I say case study, that's just what I'm calling it. But one example of land that you just saved, an easement that you just uh, orchestrated, and this was just last April, and uh, you secured protection, malt secured protection for a 527 acre ranch along Nicasio Reservoir for farming, uh, for farming, saving the recently at risk land from subdivision and development. Can you tell us the story of why that land was so important to Jim McIsaac? Yeah. You remember? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. I want to make sure you actually know that story because I've got the story in case. Yeah. yeah. I assume you're involved in all of these, but yeah. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Though? Yeah. You know, it's a great story. Uh, you know, Jim and his family leased that ranch for over a hundred years. And um, unbeknownst to them, all of a sudden it went on the market. They just up, saw a sign. They went, they just saw a sign. There was, there was no conversation with them, this family that had been leasing for over 100 years. God, that's, yeah. that's, that's like, hurtful. Like, hey, heads up, Jim. That you know, is hurtful. Yeah, it was a little yeah, a little brutal. And so he saw the for sale sign go up and was like, holy cow, what are we going to do? This family has been on this land for over 100 years, not yep. owning it. Yeah. Um, so basically, they were able to purchase the property um, and then come to Malt to see if we wanted to protect it in perpetuity for agricultural use. Did you help them purchase it or they were able to no. figure that part out on their own? They figured that part out on their own. Then they came to you. And then they came to us okay. and said, hey, you know, do you want to, you know, are you interested in protecting this land? We want to protect this land forever for farming. Mm-hmm. And uh, we definitely did. It was a property that fit in really nicely with other protected properties in that area. And, you know, at, at this point now, with 50,000 acres protected, actually 52,500, um, if you look at our map online... Which I is, love looking at the map. I'm just going to yeah. say www.malt.org. And I'm going to say it again. again. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, if you check out our map, you'll see this um, kind of network of protected farms and ranches. And as a conservation biologist at heart and a landscape ecologist, I really, that's what gets me excited because you, you start to see these, the ecological and agricultural, you know, benefits to having these large, you know, connected blocks of, of protected farms and ranches. So that ranch, the McIsaac Ranch, fit right in with an area that are relatively close to Point Reyes Station that we've been working on that has a lot of strategic values to it. Um, and so we basically said, yeah, and we have a very robust um, evaluation process. So we receive applications from landowners, and then we review those applications. We do a site visit. We, you know, we have these selection criteria used to see if the property is a good fit or not. Mm-hmm. So it really met all of our selection criteria. And we were able to, uh, to purchase an easement from the McIsaacs that allowed them, well, didn't allow them. They already owned the land and were able to, you know, make it make their sure. own. Yep. But um, now it's... Now it's safe and secure forever. Yeah. yeah. Which is fantastic. So yeah. two things about that story. One is, and it's, this might just be my being naive, I guess, but, um, so I was, I go past the Nicasio Reservoir whenever I can get a car and, uh, and I was just out there. I just saw a bald eagle out there. I don't know if you guys see those a lot. Yes. I had never seen yes. one in Marin. I was really excited. I, I mentioned it on the show two weeks ago, but, uh, but anyway, that area, given that it's a reservoir, given that there's no other development around, I would have just naively assumed I didn't have anything to worry about, that that land was protected. So do you find that that's one of your challenges, that the public sometimes, and maybe I guess you're not dealing with the public so much, you're dealing more with the actual ranchers and farmers who probably already know, but do you ever find that there's any issue there with people sort of assuming that certain lands are protected? Because I'm thinking it's a reservoir, we must have this buffer around it to protect right. the water. And then when I was reading the story saying that, we could have had a housing development there. I was really, really blown away. Yeah. 
I mean, is that just, you're on the inside, so maybe that's, and again, these farmers and ranchers you're dealing with, they probably know that, or is there something, I mean, I guess I'm not even sure what my question was, other than just to express my shock. I guess a lot of these places that we take for granted, if we're not on the inside again, so to speak, we can't necessarily take for granted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that... I still am amazed when I drive through, you know, uh, you know, West Marin and some areas in Sonoma as well that are protected um, for farming and ranching or for wildlands. Um, that I mean, how how could this place not be covered with homes right now? It's right. just unbelievable, right? You know, and I think right. a lot of people believe or just kind of assume sometimes incorrectly that well, it must be protected by the federal government or the state government or you know, county parks or the water, you know, the water district or something like that. And, and while, you know, in Marin, a lot, a lot of land is protected. So much is, right, right, um, fortunately. You know, the ag on the ag side, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, there's, there's good zoning, which is important as well as, you know, uh, organizations like MALT that work together to, you know, long-term make sure that these lands are being used for agriculture and stay, you know, stay in agriculture. Yep. But, um, yeah, when you drive through an area that's open, especially, you know, 20, 30 miles from, from downtown San Francisco and it's, it's undeveloped. Don't assume that it's, it's going to stay undeveloped or that's going to stay undeveloped. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the biggest thing. I think people get kind of lulled to sleep. You know, I grew up in Walnut Creek mm-hmm. and, uh, near a place called Shell Ridge. Okay. So if any folks know Walnut Creek and East Bay, Shell Ridge is a part of the Mount Diablo foothill, um, park system. And uh, my grammar school is right on the edge of Shell Ridge, a little, little elementary school called Indian Valley. And on the other side of this chain link fence was open space. Yep. And I just figured that was just the way it was. You know, I mean, I didn't think twice about that as a six-year-old or five-year-old, you know, going to kindergarten there. Right. But as I, you know, got into high school, I was like, well, wait a minute, well, how is this, you know, and I'm going in and out of these highly densely developed areas and here's this, you know, thousands of acres of open space where there's cows and mountain bikers and hikers. And, and that just really fascinated me. That was kind of part of my, um, awakening, my awakening, or, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, I was interested in conservation before that moment, but it definitely hit me. And then as I got into the profession that, you know, land conservation business, that really sticks out in my mind. So, because I, I incorrectly or, you know, falsely assumed that it was just kind of, it just happens. Standard. It just happens. Yeah. Right. But it's, yeah. and then you get to a place like Malt, and it's like there are just thousands of people over the last 38 years that have made what we have in West Marin possible. Yeah. And Marin residents are fiercely proud of this conservation legacy. Right. That we as a community, as a Marin community, have, have made possible. Because it's, it's all been it, grassroots. It's all been grassroots. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's talk really quickly because this part was interesting. So land is not cheap, especially in Northern California. Malt yeah. is about buying land or buying land easements. So where do you get the money to do that? Let's just talk quickly about the financial model because that's yeah. interesting as well. Yeah. So the we raise about half of the money it takes to protect farmland from our supporters and then the other half from public agencies. Mm-hmm. And who are the supporters? So supporters are uh, family foundations and uh, individuals um, who have amazing supporters that have yep. really allowed us to do everything we do. But what's really unusual uh, about our funding model is that we're able to match dollar for dollar every every donation we receive. We're able to match one to one. And how are you able to do that? Because I saw that 
and I didn't read deeply enough to see. Is it just because these agencies, you've got certain agencies or foundations that have yeah. basically agreed that will match whatever you get? Well, it's actually the way around. So okay. the public money requires a 50% match. The public money does. Yeah, the public money does. Most of these agencies, so we work with County of Marin. Oh, public as in government money, government not, money. Not, not individual. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. The right. public yeah, I know. Money. Yeah. No, no, I was like, wait, no how does that work? That's, wow. You've got a lot of negotiation that you got to take care <laughs> right. of. Yeah, wow. Right. No. So I'm giving you twenty dollars this month. So you better match it, or else you're not getting my twenty bucks. Okay. That's it. That's right. what these these public agencies do. Yeah. So, for example, the California Department of Conservation, they have a a, a program that that grants funds for farmland conservation easement purchase. Um, the National um, USDA has a program called the Natural Resources Conservation Service (NRCS). A lot of acronyms here. Sure. Um, locally, County of Marin has a farmland preservation program. All these require a fifty percent match. Okay. So they will give you, you know, money, but you have to match it. And the idea is just to motivate you to go out and get more money. Yeah, and it's you know these are this is public money, this is taxpayer money, and it requires you know you have to have some, you know, some something in the game to right. to, to in order to get. They're not money. just going to hand it out. Right. You got to prove basically that you're worthy and. Right. And that's can, a real yeah. um, impediment to a lot of land trusts who work in other areas because it's hard to raise that money. Mm, these easements mm-hmm. aren't cheap. I mean, these right. easements are, they range from about, you know, 40 to 50% of the fee value of the land. Right. So if this ranch is worth $2 million, fair market value, we will pay you a million dollars for your development rights. It's a lot of money. Right. That's a lot of money. And $2 million mm-hmm. for a ranch and rent is, you know, for a 500 acre ranch, that's, that's about average. I was going to say, yeah. Know? Yeah. So that's, that's a realistic scenario right there. So, so from that million dollars, 500,000 comes from, you know, public agencies, 500,000 comes from our private supporters. Yep. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of fundraising. Yeah. A lot of fundraising. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the cost of land continues to escalate too. So it's just this moving target. Yeah, I mean, it, the cost of protecting farmland with easements um, in Marin increased by almost 90% between 2011 and 2016. Ouch, 90%, yeah. yeah. Between a, in a five-year period there. Wow. So it's leveled off a little bit, but that's that's the way it goes. It goes, it steps up. Right. And so not only does this represent real pressure being put on these landowners to sell to the highest bidder, hmm. You know, if things aren't going real smoothly, that's that's an option for them. Just, sure. Just get out. Just sure. sell. Yep. And and so we're combating that, but also it puts a lot of pressure on us to to continue this fundraising to be ready when these folks come to us wanting to protect their land for farming and ranching. Right. We have to raise theoretically nine hundred percent more money than we did five years ago. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. You are a brave, determined man and organization. Um, so let's change gears completely, though, because there's some other stuff I want to talk about. We focus more on kind of the business e side of things. But let's talk about uh, the environment and climate change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, environmentalists and ranchers are often at odds. Fortunately, in this case, they've they've realized um, that they have more in common, perhaps, than not. Um, but from Malt's perspective, so there, there's a lot of environmental good that can come out of the preservation and proper management of agriculture lands. So we're going to talk about your stewardship stewardship program and carbon farming shortly, because I'm really interested in both of those. But just at a higher level, what are some other ways that agricultural lands that we can typically think of just crops and animals or livestock, how how can they have a positive environmental impact in addition to this carbon farming we're going to talk about in a second? Yeah. Uh, so there's kind of, there's multiple benefits that 
uh, working farmland and rangeland provide us with. Um, so invasive species, weeds. That's a big issue because as these weeds kind of roll in, they actually reduce the productivity of the land. So when you have a well-managed grazing system on your property, it basically keeps those invasive species at bay. There was a t- statistic on your site that said uh, it, invasive weeds could lower the productivity or the, um, there's a different word you use in farming. Uh, um, anyway, we'll call it productivity by 50%. Yeah, it that can. Basically, it's less, there's less feed, there's 50% less food for the animals. That's right. If there are certain in, invasive thistles and things like that. That's right. It was. Yeah, that's right. So that's a, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a, a lot. I was, I was really surprised. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a big deal. Um, cause otherwise these ranchers lose that productivity. They have to start purchasing feed, supplemental feed from yep. outside of the area, bringing yep. it in sometime. And that costs money that affects their bottom line. So it yep. affects the profitability and the viability of these ranches. Um, well-managed rangeland also provides a habitat for a number of special status and common species that occur. So um, there's in Point Reyes National Seashore, for example. I know that's a you know very controversial situation that's going on, but yep. uh, there's a lot of charges being being levied at the at the agricultural site there that they are actually um, uh, that grazing is actually negatively affecting wildlife in the mm-hmm. park, mm-hmm. and they're focusing on tule elk. And you know, we can talk a little bit about that. That's not really our fight, but they're not they're not talking about all these other plants for example, that cannot compete with um, exotic invasive species, weeds, mm-hmm. that grazing allows for them to continue to exist in the park. There's also species like red-legged frog, California-legged frog, which is a state-listed uh, species that does very well with, with managed uh, grazelands, mm-hmm. uh, rangelands. And you have to remember, too, that before cows, it was elk. Well, that, I've thought deer. about that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Other ungulates you know, across the state. And so again, there's good, there's good grazing and there's not so good grazing, right? So I'm talking about well-managed grazing systems Mm -hmm. that emulate what the historic herds of elk and deer did. Yep. So if it can be done in that way, using methods like rotational grazing, um, it can be to, to a great benefit to the other, to the entire ecosystem and to other species that rely on a managed, you know, grazing system. Sure. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, water and water, water holding capacity, soil water holding capacity um, is another one. So it, it ties into the carbon farming, what we're going to talk about a little bit. But when you can, um, again, when you can manage a rangeland system well, it actually will um, store more water in the soil. Mm-hmm. Because you're using photosynthesis to bring in carbon into the soil, mm-hmm. organic matter. We can yep. talk more about that. Yeah, let's let's talk. Let's just go into carbon farming, also yeah. in the interest of time, because this seems like a real, a, a very large part of of your environmental side of things. And the, yeah. so, and it's I think it's relatively new, relatively experimental. Um, uh, but but anyway, so you you uh, da, 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 I'm skipping here. So so yeah. So just tell me what is carbon farming? Yeah. Let's just start with that. Yeah. I, I don't need to overthink it. I guess yeah. Let's start with what is carbon farming because I had never heard of it. Yeah, carbon farming is a set of practices that uh, actually remove CO2, carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere and sequester it as organic matter in the soil and plants. Yep. That live along creeks and streams as well as grasses on, in, on rangeland. So things like uh, applying green waste compost, for example, 
there was a study recently done that suggested if we were to apply just a half an inch of green waste compost over just five... What's green? Oh, green waste compost. Green waste yep. compost, Sorry. Yep. right, without adding any manure, just green waste compost over just 5% of the state's rangelands, we could sequester the equivalent of removing five mil six million cars from the road. Not just one year, but every year for up to 20 years. Just one application... Of half, of half an inch of oh, compost. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. what it does is it, it kickstarts this, um, it, it kickstarts photosynthesis in the system. So a lot of these rangelands have been degraded. And when you add uh, compost and you change your grazing regime to be more rotational in nature and you're allowing the plants to take in more CO2, over time, that process of photosynthesis brings in this organic matter through the roots down deep into the soil and it enriches the soil. So basically the bottom line without getting too deep into this is that by changing uh, practices on rangeland, you actually can get greener grass that lasts longer throughout the year. And over time, the soil becomes more healthy and retains more water. So you, became, you become more drought resilient. So these ranchers can actually become kind of climate change champions where they can actually be combating climate change by removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And this isn't like mitigating or offsetting. This is actually removing a greenhouse gas altogether from the atmosphere. Storing and this, it is, in the this is even factoring in the livestock and the methane that the livestock is, right. is putting out. Now, methane is another... That's not... Yeah, you're saying carbon dioxide. This is just carbon dioxide. Okay, yeah. But, but I do want to talk about methane. Yeah. Um, so, um, we, we have, uh, a number of dairies in the North, North Bay, yep. right? A lot of these family dairies. And while they're not the, the, you know, emitting as much methane as some of these large industrial, uh, dairies in the Flamakeen Valley, for example, there's still methane emissions going on. And so we are looking at, um, how we can change the thinking around managing animal waste, from it being a liability to it being a an asset, an asset. and so there are there's something called um, methane digesters out mm -hmm. there. I don't mm -hmm. know if folks have heard about that, but basically, you collect the manure, you put a tent over it, and you capture all of the methane that's coming off of that manure, and you're generating electricity from it. Yeah. So it's a Crazy. source of renewable energy, basically. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. Um, and then you take that degassed manure, if you will. That was my next question. Then, you, what, well, then what do you do with the what's left you, over? So yeah. then you mix it one-to-one uh, -one with green waste, and you compost it. And then you spread that, that compost over back the land. Back in the grasslands. Back on the ranch lands or yep. the range lands yep. to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and kickstart this cascade effect within the soil to make it a long-term long carbon sink where it can sequester more carbon, it can uh, add nutrients to the soil to make it more productive for forage for the animals long-term now. I'm talking 20 to 30 years, right? Yep. Single yep. application. Yeah. And it can hold more water. Single application still, again, impacting for 20 to 30 years. Yeah. That's what the science is saying right now. That's that's insane. All right, I have a million questions about that. But um, since we don't have that much time, I'm just curious how much, because like I said, when I was reading, it sounded as if some of what we're describing here with this uh, carbon... Wait, what am I calling it? Carbon uh, farming. Carbon farming. Yeah. Uh, that it's still relatively new. Like, how how widespread is this in Marin, and, and is this going beyond Marin yet? Like, yeah. what this practice? Yeah. 
Yeah, so MALT is a part of a kind of a consortium of, of scientists and ranchers and other agency folks um, called the Marin Carbon Project. Okay. That was um, founded about 10 years ago. Um, and folks might have heard or read the article recently in the New York Times um, titled, Can Dirt Save the Earth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. And it was all about the Marin Carbon Project. And uh, But MALT was... A, a key partner in the very beginning of that work. And so what we've been doing now is we've we've demonstrated the science. One of the partners is Wendy Silver from UC Berkeley. So she's been working on the project for the entire 10 years. She's proven the science. She's published numerous articles about it. Yep. Um, we actually have demonstrated the, the science on a couple of demonstration farms on malted ranches in Marin. Um, where we're seeing really good results. And now um, Malt and um, some of our partners are now working to develop carbon farm plans. So what that is, is we go to, you know, farmer A, B, and C. We look at their operations. We look at what kind of soils they have, what, what, you know, the, the topography, the hydrology, um, and, and, the, and the production they have. And we put together, a, we, we recommend a number of practices that we think will have the biggest bang for the buck Yep. Um, as far as reducing uh, greenhouse gases on farm, as well as uh, removing CO2 from the atmosphere and helping their bottom line. And then so the goal really now is to and we've we've done these plans now, uh, the Marine Carbon Project and Malt and our partners have been. We've got plans in I think over 20 counties in California now. Wow. Fantastic. And other, um, you know, if you look at the literature and the kind of. Um, discussion that's going on it's it's all over the country right now other and outside the and overseas overseas so china's talking about this brazil's talking about this it was discussed at the the paris accord um the climate talks there yeah yeah. so it's making some waves yeah so it's but it but for me you know i'm i'm an applied science guy right so i get frustrated when there's a lot of great theoretical talk and not so much action. Not so much action. And so, you know, I, my goal really is to start implementing these carbon farm plans, the whole plan, not just a couple practices to see if they work. Right. Like compost application. But let's let's apply. Let's 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 do it. Let's do it. You know, and what does that take? And um, so we're going to be implementing our first carbon farm plan, like not all at once, but a whole plan. We're going to start Begin with this phase approach here. We expect this fall. Excellent. And then going into 2019. Um, right now, Moran has about 20 completed carbon farm plans. Okay. Um, that's not just malted ranchers. About half are malted ranchers. Um, half are non-malted ranchers. You like that saying, malted? Uh, yeah, no, I did. I caught that. <laughs> I caught that. I almost commented on it. But said, yeah, malted. Yeah, right. It's cool. So now yeah. we got to now we got to find a way to implement these plans. Yeah. And some of them might might include a carbon or a uh, methane mi- digester, for example. That's mm-hmm. a very expensive plan. Yep. Some might just include uh, spreading compost and planting windrows. And that might be enough. Some might include uh, riparian restoration. For example, which is watershed register, or water, creek water, bed, or yeah, river. I mean, uh, shore. Riparian yep. species, shrubs and trees, yep. really sequester way more carbon than grasses do. Really, yeah. For example, so you get mm-hmm. you get more bang for your buck if you and restore they hold the land stream. and prevent erosion and right. all that. A lot yep. of multiple benefits to yep. uh, creek restoration. All right, we have sixty seconds. Wow, there's I know. See, I would love seriously. There are so many things I wanted to dig deeper on, but I wanted to make sure we covered some of the the main things. But before we uh, check out here. I want to mention us some of the events that Malt has. Yeah. So it's not all business. It's not all 
Uh, you do hikes, tours, tastings, and art show and sale. You do La Tour de Mont, which I assume is a bike ride. It's a bike ride, 53 uh, mile yeah. bike ride. 53 miles. Yep. Uh, you've got Malt Day at the Pumpkin Patch, which I'm guessing is seasonal. Yep. And something I want to do that I was excited about that I, I didn't know about and I will do uh, shortly because I'm going to be house-sitting in Marin for three and a half weeks is the, uh, the Cow Heaven GPS guided tour. Yes. So that seems pretty cool. So that's basically going around. I'm just going to paraphrase, but I think that's just basically going around and learning what you guys have done, looking at different malt uh properties and kind of getting the history behind them and is yeah. that basically the gist yeah that's basically yeah. the gist you know we 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 work very hard to get folks out on the land mm-hmm. and because mm-hmm. uh the land that we protect is privately owned it's not always accessible you know to the public so right. we have to be the ones working with the landowners to put on these events and but lucky for everybody we do about 15 to 20 events a year yep and they're excellent if yeah. you if you like uh, you know, healthy local food that's sourced, you know, maybe a half mile away on another mall protected ranch. The, and who doesn't? Yeah, that's right. And who doesn't? All right. So uh, go join malt, especially if you live in Marin, but even if you don't. And again, Jameson already threw this out here, but we're going to throw it out again. Malt.org. Jameson, thank you very much for being here. I'd love to have you on again, because like I said, selfishly, there's so much more I want to know about, uh, but this is a great intro. So thanks for coming in. Thank you very much, Matthew.